It's Monday, and that means a radioactive is passing the mic to a new wave of journalists from Salt Lake Community College in partnership with Amplify Utah. I'm Marcy Uncancio, Assistant Professor of Journalism and Digital Media at SLCC and founder of Amplify Utah, and I am thrilled you're joining us. Tonight, right here on KRCL 90.9, Christian Martinez will be taking a dive into diversity and unpacking some of Utah's lesser spoken stories. We'll have some fun too, like we always do, with a breakdown of this week's pop culture nuggets that we are just so super excited to talk about. All right, Christian, take it away. Thanks, Marcy. Welcome to the Voices Amplify Takeover on Radioactive, a show that plugs you into the community. I'm Cristian Martinez, your host and a student journalist at Salt Lake Community College. First this hour, the internet is conventionally seen as a negative force on mental health, but according to recent surveys, it seems that the relationship is a bit more complicated than that. A student journalist delved into the topic. Then, Salt Lake Community College has positioned itself as an emerging Hispanic-serving institution. But what does that mean to serve Hispanic students? And why is this important to SLCC? That's ahead on today's Voices Amplify Takeover. Good to have you with us. According to the National Alliance on Mental Health, 52.9 million U.S. adults struggled with mental health in 2020. That's nearly one in five adults. Additionally, the National Alliance on Mental Health also found that half of all lifetime illness begins around the age of 14 and 75% by the age of 24. With this in mind, one might ask the question of, to what extent the internet affects mental health due to its prevalence in people's lives, particularly among young people. In her Salt Lake Tribune story titled, How Social Media Has Changed the Perception of Mental Health Care, Alexi Zollinger, a student journalist at Salt Lake Community College who has joined us today, spoke with SLCC students and a mental health counselor to explore this topic. In addition to Alexi, we are joined by Alexandra Micic, a licensed clinical social worker and assistant clinical director for the Lifeline for Youth, a family-focused treatment clinic located in North Salt Lake. Alexi and Alexandra, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So I want to start with you, Alexi. Um, your story cites various people and pieces of information, um, some of which I just mentioned in the opening there. Um, but I'm curious to hear, um, during your reporting, was there any specific statistic or um, piece of information that you found most interesting or surprising? Yeah, the most interesting statistic I found in that story was probably that from that study from the National Alliance or the yeah National Alliance on Mental Health, about half of all lifetime mental illness begins at age 14 and 75% by age 24. I found that interesting, interesting because there is such a wide range of ages when people decide to seek treatment. So more people get treatment right when they first start to deal with something. And then some people get it decades or years later. And it's just interesting that it all kind of begins around that time. And then you can kind of just choose where to go from there. Yeah. And we will, we will discuss a lot of these issues and in, in more detail here with Alexandra. Um, but ultimately your story explores like the nuanced relationship between the internet and, and mental health. Um, so I was wondering if you made any personal associations, maybe perhaps with your own experiences during your course of the reporting. Yeah, um, I am on all sorts of social media. And right now on social media, there's this portion of the Internet that is kind of all about, uh, you know, self-help and bettering yourself. And a lot of it, it's just being media literate. And I see things like you know, if you have this, you it's a symptom of ADHD or you might have this, you might have that. So I thought it was interesting, basically, that all this information is out there. And, you know, what are people doing with it? What's the effect of having so many, so many different things on the Internet telling you what's what and how's this and everything like that? Well, I think this is a good point to uh, shift over to Alexandra. Um, first, would you describe your role and what kind of work you do at Lifeline? Yeah, I'm a um, clinical therapist and an assistant clinical director at Lifeline. Um, I work with teenagers and I've been here for six and a half years, work with teens generally from about 13 to 17 years old uh, and also their families. Uh, um, and really their, their diagnoses are typically, you know, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, um, trauma, um, things of that nature. So you mentioned youth and family members. Does that mean you treat both youth and older individuals, perhaps past adult? Um, is that is that correct? 
So it's, so our, our clients are the youth that live here mm-hmm. and then also come here for treatment. And then their families are their caregivers uh, um, that will come into therapy with them. And a lot of the therapists, you know, really like to challenge, you know, parents or caregivers to make changes as well, if they want their kiddo to make a lot of changes throughout our program. And, you know, Alexi's story cites information regarding um, age discrepancies um, that younger people uh, tend to seek uh, more help in terms of their mental illness than older individuals or their predecessors. Um, so based on your experience, perhaps maybe not at LIFI necessarily, but maybe more broadly speaking, do you find these discrepancies to be accurate? Yeah, I think so. I think um, I think our young kiddos are so well-versed in the different just like clinical diagnoses we have out there. And maybe I'll speak on that a little bit later in terms of how that could be detrimental as well. But I think that because it's so out there on like TikTok, Snapchat, all those different things, I I think they're just, it's more normalized. So it's like, hey, it's okay to have depression. It's okay to have anxiety and it's okay for us to get help. Uh, And I will say like, to be more specific with that, I think our younger population, like 14 to 17, but also what I see is just a lot of like white females, I think being a little bit more comfortable in seeking mental health treatment um, than maybe like males in particular, but also, you know, like males of color. Um, So there's definitely a discrepancy there too. You mentioned there that there are that there is some sort of normalization kind of happening because of the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so do you, would, would you say then that this is probably why, or maybe a likely factor why younger generations are seeking uh, more treatment with regarding their mental health? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, if, you know, if one of our youth is scrolling through TikTok and, you know, they're seeing, Um, here are some of the signs of, you know, bipolar or anxiety. And they're like, whoa, I have some of those things. You know, they might, you know, they might go to a caregiver or they might go to a friend and say, "Um, I'm struggling with this. They're more open about what's going on with them. And then from there, you know, they might get, you know, someone going, hey, you should go see this person that I saw for therapy or, or whatever else. So yeah, I think it, I think it makes a lot of sense as to how those two are connected. So seeing as how the internet does seem to create more normalization, do you think that this can maybe change the outlook that certain people might have in terms of the perception of mental health care in terms um, of older adults, maybe, you know, like, for example, I think one of the statistics was that 22% of baby boomers who were born in that era compared to 37% of Gen Z are seeking help. So do you think that this normalization of internet also extends to older generations? Yes and no. I, and maybe I'm biased, you know, working with um, a lot of, a lot of families, you know, ranging from, you know, 35 up to 65. And, and, and sometimes our parents are sort of inspired by, by the kids and wanting to seek therapy themselves. Uh, Sometimes they're challenged by their own kids to go get help for their own stuff. But then we have a lot of, you know, older generations who sort of still believe that mental health is not a thing, you know, or uh, depression is kind of a sign of weakness and you just kind of have to like buckle your bootstraps and, uh, you know, work hard and, uh, you know, you won't have to feel so sad anymore. <laughs> and and we still see that, unfortunately, but I, I think it depends and um, do you do you see as do you, do you think there's a way to perhaps dismantle that those perceptions that older individuals might have about mental health care? I think I think there's a way. I think it has to hit close to home sometimes. You know, I think there there's a way to influence. Um, you know, especially within your own family of origin, you know, if someone that you really care about is going through something hard, I think it takes a lot of dialogue um, to kind of convince, um, you know, an, an older person of the seriousness of some of the mental health issues that we have. But I think it does require a lot of like conversation. <laughs> on the back on the topic of the internet, um, you know, there's been 
you know, a lot of uh, current social events might be perhaps adding to feelings of uh, anxiety, perhaps, or, um, you know, feelings of maybe even, maybe could even be adding to depression in a lot of individuals. Um, so Alexi's story cites that, you know, it's a good idea for people who are on the internet to be uh, social media literate, right? To have an, an idea of what they are consuming, um, citing the possibility of unqualified influencers discussing topics like depression. Um, so do you have any advice for people who are struggling with their mental health and who are navigating um, the internet, um, maybe even social media on a regular basis? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, curating your feed, uh, you know, I think um, really sort of like filtering what it is that you want to um, consume yourself with on social media and kind of take out the parts that um, that you notice might not um, benefit your mental health. Uh, um, and I think just being careful in diagnosing yourself, diagnosing other people, um, you know, I see a lot of like buzzwords going around in our young community about like, oh, I'm feeling really manic or there's my OCD just kicking in. And, you know, we take the power out of those like kind of big clinical diagnoses if we're just throwing them around uh, constantly and we're not officially diagnosed with these things. Uh, so just being careful not to like diagnose yourself um, kind of takes the... I don't know, it takes the power out of it. Um, just proceed with caution <laughs> would be my simple advice. Alexandra mentioned um, a lot of buzzwords, and I'm curious to hear from Alexi if this was something that drew you to this story, because I know this is something that is perhaps pervasive on certain forums or different social sites. So I'm, I'm curious to hear from you. Yeah, that was a big reason that I was interested in this story because I, throughout my own mental health treatment, had heard a lot of these buzzwords and things that she had mentioned. And then I would go on social media and see them used in a much different way, in a very casual, you know, there's my OCD, there's some, I'm manic today, things like that. And so the contrast was just so intriguing between like the seriousness of actual uh, mental health treatment and having that one-on-one -on -one with like a therapist versus then going on Twitter and seeing somebody using it in such a casual way, I think was really interesting for me and was kind of like drew me into the more mental health on the internet kind of casualness of it all, because it is helpful that it makes other people relate to each other and creates normalization, but it's also diminishing the term or the, the weight of mania or depression in that way. A hundred percent. If I can kind of speak on that, speak on that too, you know, there, there, it takes a lot to kind of form an official diagnosis for somebody take mm -hmm. bipolar, for example, right. And someone wants to talk about how they're in a really happy mood one day and they refer to it as manic, uh, you know, that, we wouldn't be able to use that term in that way. That's not mania. And so for someone who's actually experiencing, you know, bipolar or whatever the diagnosis is, uh, you know, is actually, you know, it can be quite offensive. Like that's not actually right. yeah. you know, my experience with that. There's a lot of detrimental, um, just negative effects from, you know, having some of these like serious mental health conditions. And so I, I completely agree with, with what you said, Lexi. Mm -hmm. And again, we were, you know, this all brings it ties in back together. This idea that, you know, this, this nuanced relationship, right. That the internet does normalize um, people discussing um, depression amongst themselves, people finding solace, people finding in a way solidarity, but also um, realizing that there is some ear of caution just because of, you know, people using these terms, sometimes talking about very casually. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I will say on kind of more on the positive end of things I've, I've seen with a, a lot of our LGBTQ youth, especially our trans youth, uh, they'll find a lot of support groups out on the internet and where they feel really connected. You know, they don't go around their high schools or public schools uh, and, and have a lot of people who share sort of similar experiences. Uh, um, and so finding some of these like really healthy support groups online has been really, really um, impactful 
for some of our, some of our kiddos who struggle with some of those issues. And Alexandra, just um, tying this back a little bit to the clinic, um, when a patient does come in, what is the usual or the common relationship you've seen, you see between them and their internet usage or perhaps a relationship with maybe social media? So typically we'll hear about the relationship from the parents. So the parents will say, oh, my kid is uh, addicted to their phones. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, so that, that's what we see, you know, when they first come here, we really don't allow them to have any sort of like phones, electronics. Uh, so they are supposed to just kind of like dive into life and uh, sort of get vulnerable. And then as they kind of make their way through the program, uh, you know, they can sort of earn back some of these privileges. Uh, and most of the kids, that's like a big incentive for them. Like can't wait to earn my phone back <laughs> and get back on my, you know, social media. Cause that's how people connect these days. Like people don't text anymore. Like when you talk to kids, they're like texting. It's all about like <laughs> sending snaps or whatever else. So, you know, it is a way for them to connect, but I definitely see a lot of kids spending a lot of time on, on their phones, on social media. And I think, um, you know, I, I start to see them almost kind of decline a little bit um, in terms of um, family relationships, sometimes in terms of their own mental health. Sometimes I'll see relapses happen uh, typically around that stage when the phone comes back into the picture. But I think there's probably a lot more factors there than just the internet and social media. So Alexander, so when people who are experiencing um, mental health issues or they are experiencing some sort of hardship in their lives, what do you normally recommend people to do in times of difficulty? Because um, it seems that perhaps turning to the internet might not be a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it depends on kind of what what you do with resources that are available on the internet. So like if it feels safe going to a caregiver, a trusted adult, um, a parent, you know, they, they can typically like call their insurance company or something and see what kind of therapists are available in their community. Um, you know, you can call, um, you know, the 1-800-TALK line, which is like a national suicide prevention line. Uh, you know, there's also like a teen text line that kiddos can kind of text, um, if they're in crisis, um, but I would just say, talk to a trusted adult, you know, and I know that can be really like hard and scary, uh, but we have a lot of our kids kind of create safety plans sometimes, whereas, you know, where you'll kind of identify, you know, five key people that you can go to if you're having a hard time of, or if you're struggling with something. Uh, I, I kind of discourage friends from there because sometimes friends won't go to the appropriate source for you to get the professional help that you need. Uh, so just trusted adults. Alexi and Alexandra, thank you again for coming on today's show. We appreciate your time. Um, before we let both of you go, um, it's tradition here on Voices Amplified to play songs chosen by our guests. Um, Alexi, do you have anything for us today? Yeah, the song I chose was Video Life by Chris Spedding. Uh, the lyrics are pretty funny. It's just basically what happens when you look at life like it's a video. Perfect, and what about you, Alexandra? Um, oh, this was hard for me, but I just picked something that I was vibing to this morning on my way to work. Um, September 16 by Russ, love that song. Thank you so much again to the both of you. When we come back, Salt Lake Community College has positioned itself as an emerging Hispanic-serving institution. What does it mean to serve Hispanic students, and why is this important to SLCC? Right here on Voices Amplified. As many as 2 million people have been displaced in Ukraine, the Utah Ukrainian Association has a list of ways you can help. Find them on Facebook under the handle Love Ukrainians or the Connect page of krcl.org. Spring is in the air. It's getting warmer outside. The days are brighter and longer. And KRCL is playing the perfect soundtrack just for you. Spring Radiothon is coming up soon. Help to make sure we can keep bringing you the music and information that you rely on with a donation to KRCL. Help us get a jump start on the drive and make your donation today at krcl.org. Thanks.
Thank you for tuning in for today's Voices Amplified Takeover of Radioactive. I'm Cristian Martinez, a student journalist at Salt Lake Community College. On February 28th, Salt Lake Community College had held an event to update staff and faculty on the school's vision and strategic goals. Though this event has been more general in past years, this one, this year's, focus on SLCC status as an emerging Hispanic-serving institution. According to the Utah System of Higher Education, Hispanic students who are here for full enrollment account for nearly 20% of SLCC's total student body as of 2021, the highest percentage figure of any ed higher ed institution in Utah. Though there are certain requirements for obtaining the Hispanic-serving federal designation, SLCC looks to better serve its Hispanic population regardless of an identifying moniker. We are joined by Richard Diaz, co-lead for the Emerging Hispanic Serving Institute, uh, Institution Collaborative Work Team at SLCC, and Sandy Sisteves, Student Success Coordinator for Latinx Students. Richard and Sandy, saludos, and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Christian. It's good to see you again, Sandy. Yeah, nice to see you, Richard. Before we delve into the topic of Hispanic serving institution proper, um, or as we may refer to it throughout this conversation, HSI, which is the abbreviation, um, I want to discuss some figures that the college released during that February event. Um, so as we'll see, released some data showing that as a whole, completion rates from 2020 to 2021 improved despite the pandemic. Um, however, Latinx students saw a decline in completion rates and the opportunity gap among Latinx students which measures the percentage difference in completion rates between students of color and their white peers, also widened by about 8% from 2020 to 2021. Um, so Sandy's, I know this is, a, this is undoubtedly a multifaceted issue, but as someone who works um, with Latinx students, what are some commonly voiced concerns that you hear by students who are struggling with their classes or school in general? Thank you, Christian, for that question. I think that that's um, at the forefront of things that I experienced as far as working with students and trying to figure out what's going on. I mean, if you look at what you just read and how it started from 2020 to 2021, the biggest factor that we're currently still experiencing is COVID. Um, on average, you know, we, many of the Latinx students that I work with are first generation students. And so just stepping on a college campus and dealing with everything that college is from college language, which is a lot of words that they don't understand, um, the navigating of two worlds of their life as a Latinx individual, and then being a student of first generation Latinx students in a predominantly Y institution or PWI, that itself is very overwhelming and can be intimidating. But then to add to that COVID, where most things are virtual, we're a very in-person community type people, culturally speaking. And so the the dimensions and the complexity that COVID added to the student experience is very um, much uh, a present barrier or an issue for Latinx students. Um, in addition to that, in classes, whether virtual or in person, a lot of times Latinx students are the only, either the only Latino, the only person of color, um, the only first generation student. Um, so they sometimes, well, a lot of times see a lot of uh, little representation in their classrooms, whether that is their classmates or the professor teaching the class. Um, in addition, whether it is a traditional student fresh out of high school or a non-traditional student, someone who's older, might have a family, might have children, a full-time job. Um, that transition from high school instruction and how they are used to learning in high school to how college goes is a drastic one and take some time for adopting as well. Um, and let's not mention the financial responsibility of college paying for tuition. Are they eligible for FAFSA or not? If they are eligible for FAFSA, do they qualify for FAFSA? If they do qualify for FAFSA, are their parents who sometimes could be undocumented, are they comfortable sharing the information for those students that are not an independent student? So there's a lot of different things um, that Latinx students have to face, have to think about and have to navigate through as they enter college spaces that is all new to them. So it can be so overwhelming. Um, and a lot of times when they don't have a lot of time to prepare because they have other things going on outside of a student life, uh, it's a short period of time to grasp all this information and make important decisions um, that'll yield ideally success while in college. And um, you mentioned FAFSA, um, that's, it stands for, uh, Craig, right, go ahead, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, yeah. The free application mm -hmm. for federal student aid. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I just wanted to 
Let's get some yeah. clarification on that. Yeah, for anyone Absolutely. listening who is who is not aware. Um, so Richard, you are also involved with um, programs at the school, such as Bruin Scholars Summer Bridge, um, which um, uh, help marginalized students thrive at SOCC, but although it isn't exclusive to any one group particularly, um, would you say that these programs highlight gaps holding specific certain populations from success at the school? Yes, I mean, absolutely. I think there's the, the mere fact that programs like this exist, I think point to larger systematic issues that many of our minoritized populations face as they transition from high school or from adult life and workforce into higher education. And, and you know, within our communities, we have this, this running saying that I, many of us maybe have heard that the college in general, right? When you date back historically and thinking about who it was created for, uh, as well as when you think about the, the emergence of Hispanic serving institutions, the things that they all have in common is that those colleges always, always, always started as predominantly white colleges. Um, and to take that even farther, um, those same colleges and universities, right? Um, they were built by minoritized populations. Um, when you think about construction workers, like a lot of them come from immigrant families, uh, immigrant communities, minoritized communities, right? But they're not built for them. They're built by them, but not for them. And that's the clear distinction here that, that as students come into this environment, there's norms that maybe, that probably are norms for folks that are coming from middle-class families, from affluent communities, from communities where their parents went to college and understand those processes. But for many Hispanic students, Latinx students who are the first in their families to come to college, some could be the first in their families to graduate from high school here in the US. Um, there's like, it's almost like coming to a foreign environment where, where we don't know that you have to go here um, to be able to complete your scholarship applications or that there's even an office that helps you with that. And there's another area where that can help you advocate for if you're having a problem with a, a faculty member or, or an instructor. And there's another area here that can help you, you know, with resources around food insecurity and housing. Um, like, you don't, you don't know what you don't know. And so programs like Summer Bridge, programs like um, like Bruin Scholars and Sandy's also leads a Somos Mass program initiative. They're all designed to help our students navigate the environments that were not designed for them. Um, to have advocates that are able to say, hey, don't just you know, sit there and, and, and take you know, that treatment that you may be receiving intentionally or intentionally by so-and-so person in so-and-so office or classroom, right? There's ways you can advocate for yourself and again, as, as someone who came from those same families, who was the first in my family to go to college and, and yet being the youngest in my family, right? Like I didn't know that, that I have some agency in how I created my education and the things that I did. Uh, and I think that narrative resonates with a lot of students that I, that I now work with and serve where they don't know that, that they can shape this experience to be one that, that works for them. Uh, and I think folks who work in those programs essentially are really skilled at being able to develop our students' kind of sense of belongingness and, and help them understand that this is a place for them, um, that there are resources available, that they can use those resources and ultimately help them navigate this environment until our students feel empowered enough to, to go through it and hopefully one day change it um, so that it's more inclusive, so that it's more welcoming to all students, regardless of their backgrounds. So you spoke about um, kind of how these institutions were not built for people of color or people who are not white, basically. Um, so a lot of what that February event, um, a large topic of that event was how what LCC, SLCC as an institution can do to help more Latinx students uh, reach graduation and find success. Um, so we've seen in recent years, um, uh, initiatives like the Dream Center have have cropped up this school, right, which helps uh, undocumented students and people who are in mixed family statuses. Um, so this, however, at the event, the, the topic was developed further to say that SLCC must fundamentally reimagine its practices with marginalized students at the center. And Richard, I'm curious to hear from you. Can you explain what this would entail and what this would look like in practice? Yeah, of course, Christian. So, so I think there's a, a number of ways we could go about answering this question. Um, but I'll use examples from my from from my own circle of influence, right, to to get the point across. Um, but I'm thinking about, for example, student government, right? And this goes to for folks who are in high school and and thinking about their own student government, to you know colleges and the way that student government functions in those 
in those are uh, in that arena. Um, but it's very structured, right? There's like a student body president, there's there's vice presidents, there's boards, there's committees, um, and and it's it's guided by bylaws. Um, and and I think in this particular scenario, right, a lot of those bylaws and that structure was set up years ago uh, when colleges look very different. Uh, many of those bylaws and rules that govern how how students' voices are heard were created by why our students from like the 60s, the 80s, right? The 50s when those colleges were first built and that diversity was minimal in those areas. Uh, like when you when you go to Solid Community College and you look at the pictures of our student body uh, over the years, you go from being a predominantly white, predominantly male student officers to like more diverse, which is what we have now over the years. Um, but we don't often challenge those, those, those bylaws. We don't look at those policies. We don't look at why do we have committees and are those committees relevant to the work that we have now and the students that we're serving, right? And, and this is what I think we mean by saying centralizing the experiences of our students that we're serving now. Um, because are we asking the students, like is, is your student government right now representative of your needs, right? Um, a lot of the work that we do is, is very much event focused because back then college was very much like a, a place for you to come and socialize and, and develop those those uh, skills and also have fun. And that's not to say that there's not a place for that right now, right? Um, but a, a lot of like the fees that students pay, student fees go towards events like that. Um, but is that still relevant to today's student population? And then I'm only asking the question, I'm not saying that it is or it's not, but I think that's why we need that centrality of our students in those decisions to be and not just any student like all of our students including students who actively don't participate in student government for whatever reason because they're still paying the student fees um, why we need them to be at the at the center of why and how we're making decisions and that goes from from decisions around student government to curriculum right when you think about gen ed um, maybe, maybe last year in September, uh, Sandy's organized, and maybe you can speak more to this, Sandy's, organized a panel um, with student voices, uh, and it was maybe six or seven students from across the college who were talking about their experiences with academics and talking specifically about gen ed, right, and the curriculum, and a lot of them had a really powerful things to say. They were like, I don't see relevance, like I'm missing relevance between my this gen ed class and my my day-to-day -day life that I'm experiencing at home and at work. And that was really powerful, right? And that's that's another example of centralizing that. So then how do we take those experiences, those testimonies, to be able to then affect and impact curriculum so that that content is more relevant to what our students are facing today and to the experiences of our students as, as they go about living in these communities that, that they're coming from. To add to that, as far as what it looks like in practice from a staff point, right, it's like Richard mentioned with that panel last year of students is creating experiences where students can have um, a platform to voice their experiences, to be like, hey, this is what's happening with me. This is not working for me. This is working for me. I would like to see more of this. And a lot of times, unfortunately, even when you present those opportunities to our Latinx students, not a lot of students raise their hand and like are like at the forefront, like, yes, I want to do that. Because unfortunately, through high school and other settings as well, they haven't been really given a lot of opportunities to feel empowered, to feel like I can I, I need to say this, to self-advocate, to express frustration, but also to express what things that they genuinely enjoy and are really enriching their experience as a college student here at Salt Lake Community College. And so having that panel and, and it's a great way to send to the student because it's not through, uh, you know, a middleman. You're hearing it from the student themselves. They are expressing themselves. They're telling you what they need or what they don't need. They're also telling you this is what's happening to me. This is what I would like to see different. Um, and I can imagine as a student myself in a different institution that when I say something and then I see it put in practice where I'm seeing changes, you know, sometime later, it really motivates me. It's like, wow, they're making it easier for me to have success, whatever I define success as. I'm going to try harder. I want to be here. They want me to be here. So I'm going to continue to work because I have, you know, a team, I'm building a team or, or the institution itself is really backing me up and supporting me so that I can go ahead and achieve my academic goals, my educational dreams, and move forward in whatever direction my life and my vision for myself takes me. And another aspect um, to this conversation could even be the um, uh, inclusive spaces at the college, right, which we have seen um, um, an example would be the lowrider events that take place at the West Valley Center. 
and also the workshops that take place there as well that are focused on Chicanida. So, um, Sandys, I know that um, last year you helped out an, uh, an artist work on a mural for SLCC and um, which it also had a, a public a public unveiling. Um, what is the importance of these kind of events and showings for Latinx students on an institutional level? Christian, that's extremely important. Um, I remember, and, and Richard, if you want to say something about this, I remember when we were receiving just uh, artist submissions, and as we were looking through the different submissions, Agustin's submissions, as we just sat there and really looked at it, um, people cried in the meeting because it just really captured um, such a shared identity among the Latinx community. We are so multifaceted and complex and intersectional in so many ways. But if there's one key place that we all connect and intersect is this idea of an immigrant story, whether that story started with us, with our parents or our grandparents, or even farther than that. And so with Agustin's um, piece, which is beautiful, and you can find it at the South City location, at West Valley Center, and also at the Jordan campus in the student center, that new building in the Jordan campus, you see this. And then right next to it, you have a picture, which is like an accompanying piece that shows you the entire mural. So you can see all three parts of it because it's a very big mural um, with the artist's words. And it's like these kind of things show us, not just the students, but me, I'm from the Dominican Republic. I wasn't born in this country. So that is my immigrant story. I journeyed here with my mother. We have hard ha hardships. This is a very different place than my you know, native country. Um, Spanish was my first language. And so to see such a core, important, central part of my identity as an immigrant, como una inmigrante, it's so, um, it's welcoming. It, it gives me pride. Every time I walk by those murals while I'm around there, even though it's not the central thing, knowing that I had something to do with that fills me with pride. But kind of taking a step back and wondering, like, I wonder what students think when they see this. Um, or I look forward to witnessing a student kind of walking by this mural for the first time and seeing like what their facial expression is and what they think about it. Because we're seeing, and it's part of the school's art uh, collection. And so it's part of the school forever. Uh, which is a really big deal for us because, again, it's such a, a beautiful intersectional part that we all share that immigrant story because we all came from somewhere. And for many of us, that somewhere is not the United States. It's somewhere else. And that's such a such a good example, Cindy, of centralizing the voices and experiences of our students, right? To think about even from the moment of coming into the campus, a uh, place that many don't feel like they can come to see something that relates to them something that makes them feel like, oh, okay, this is interesting. I wasn't expecting this here. Um, like it's huge. And it, it's about, you know, making sure that, that we're creating spaces where students feel like they belong. And that's the whole premise behind what we're trying to do by becoming a Hispanic serving institution. Regarding Hispanic serving, the emerging status of Hispanic serving institution at SLCC, um, a question that I have seen come up um, among students and also online is, what does this mean for other students of color, uh, especially white peers? You know, what, how does this, how, you know, is, how does this uh, affect them or how, in what ways could they become involved? Um, Richard, could you speak on that a little bit? Of course. Um, one, one, and this is not, this isn't a new question. I've been hearing this uh, a bit uh, since the event that we had in February. Uh, and when I think about this, ultimately I think about the benefits of being a part of a diverse environment. Uh, and, and, and there's been research and literature that focuses on, on what does it mean to work, live and study in, in an environment that's as diverse as the communities that we serve. And, and no matter, regardless of who you are and how you identify, right, I think there's benefits that are very tangible, including the ability to communicate across different cultures, to communicate across different people, um, the ability to uh, develop interpersonal skills that are needed for any sort of environment that you have, um, the ability to understand experiences outside of your own. I think those are all tangible benefits that will make anyone marketable um, when we think about it in that term, uh, in, in that idea. There's this other saying that goes, um, and um, a colleague just used it recently, rising tides raise all boats, right? And the idea that if we were serving this, this group, this community that's been marginalized for years and historically marginalized really well, uh, and we have a framework in which how we do this, 
we can use the same framework to serve other students and other communities that have been marginalized just the same or, or more, right? Um, I, I think we're focusing intentionally uh, on Hispanic students because there's a critical mass of Hispanic students at our college, and that number is increasing given where we're situated here in the Valley, given changing demographics in Salt Lake City and, and who's coming to Salt Lake City and who's living here. So I think that critical mass of students coming to college, it, is, it makes sense. And I think that's kind of urging us to focus on this, but that doesn't mean that we're going to stop focusing on everyone else. It just means that we now have a bigger rush to figure this out um, because our students are here, they're, they're coming, they're becoming quickly a majority, and we need to figure this out for, for this community and we need to figure this out for everyone. And, and also to add to that, I'm so sorry, but I have to say this. <laughs> if you think about what Richard said earlier about how all institutions of higher education at first when they were built were built and designed to serve white individuals, um, that transition that has happened where now, because we see and we find ourselves in these spaces, the changes must happen in order to accommodate us. And it's not like a pie where if I get more, you get less, right? It's about equity. And given the numbers and the stats and the dem growing demographics in this valley, um, just like Richard mentioned, rising tides lift all boats. It's, it's that kind of thing. And specifically for marginalized, uh, marginalized communities, um, the Latinx being one of them, by serving Latinx students more fully, we're really serving more students of color more fully. So it's not a, a focus or a Latinx students only type of situation, because if that were the case, then we'd be replicating an issue that we've been fighting for decades, that we've been trying to push up against and, and change for decades. So it's really about how do we as an institution and in the different roles that we all play serve all of our students and welcome all of our students as a whole. You are an individual who has a life outside of being a student. How can we welcome you into this space and help you achieve whatever your goals are by offering all the services and all the support that you need, all the while having you see yourself in the artwork and the people that are here, sometimes in the music and the events and the way that we interact with the community as an institution. It's about making this a more um, warm place for everyone that decides to walk through our doors without making, one, making anyone feel left out or feel like I have to check 50% of myself at the door and only the other half of me can come in here. We're trying to make it so that everyone who comes in here feels seen, welcomed, served, and supported. And I think just to end on one last question here, um, Richard, during February's event, um, which you gave alongside Alonso Reina Rivarola, who is your accompanying co-lead, um, you said that becoming a Hispanic serving institution is not a destination for us. It is a, it is a journey. Um, so I would love to hear from both of you. How has that journey looked thus far and how do you hope it will continue to look in the future? So I can start and I hope you can elaborate, Cindy's. Um, but uh, this is, I mean, some of, some of where we are now in terms of our numbers and the work that we're doing, like it wasn't coincidental. I think there was a lot of work that happened prior to this, uh, this event. Um, and, and I was just talking to Cindy's yesterday on the phone. Uh, like she worked for an office called the Outreach Office. Um, and one of her first jobs at the college was focusing on high school students and that pipeline, right? And helping students be prepared for college, uh, any college, but particularly Solid Community College. And just like here, we had a lot of other quote unquote pioneers who, who really helped set the foundation that college is an option for many of our students. And ultimately, that Solid Community College was a viable first kind of uh, step towards higher education for many of our students that we serve. And so that number, that 20% number you quoted earlier, in terms of where we are with full-time enrollments for Hispanic students, like it's at the expense of a lot of work and the people who kind of helped that and, and made that happen. Um, and so we're barely scratching the surface to this work, I think. So that's why I think it's a journey because as our students are changing, so do we as, as professionals in higher education, faculty, staff, we have to change, right? Um, we, we are so used to um, being in this culture where we expect students to adapt to us. And I think that, that ship has sailed. I think we have to adapt to who our students are. Uh, we talked about the impact of the pandemic prior to, to or at the very start of this interview. Uh, and we cannot undermine that. I think our students are coming to us with high school diplomas sometimes, but still with learning gaps in terms of, of, of how well they know uh, and they can navigate kind of life in general, but also learning gaps in terms of math, English, kind of those competencies that you need to be successful in college. Um, but yeah, they're, they're being pushed along, right, through their K-12 education and, and coming to our doors. 
And so we as a college have to adapt to that reality and think about how do we then teach students life skills that they, they should have learned somewhere else, but they didn't, right? And that's the reality. And then, and because that's the reality, then we have to then think about how we do that at our college. Like if we're going to say to students, come in, this is a place for you. We have to have some teeth behind that to be able to say, we'll take you as you are and we'll take you to that next level, whatever that next level might be, a credential, a certificate and associates. That's why I think it's it's the start. It's the beginning for us, right? I think building awareness and doing things like this and letting the folks know that this is, that this is one of our goals. It's the very first step to a long journey of then action, hopefully change, uh, and ultimately, right, um, transformation and transforming what we do, how we do it, um, and, and our values and mentality behind kind of what services we provide to our communities that are coming here. I think that's kind of ultimately the spirit behind what Alonso and I said by, by thinking about HSI and this designation as not the final end goal, but merely a stepping stone in ultimately what we want to do as a college, which is serve students really well and help them. And this is kind of our mission, right, of our college, um, help them transform, you know, our, our communities through a high quality education that they'll receive here at Southern Community College. I agree 100 percent, Richard. And just to add to that as well, as we're going through this transition and this shift um, and this focus on individuals that are identify as Latinx, um, with any change you and any time that you have to adapt, there's going to be mistakes, right? There's going to be, we're not going to get it right 100% of the time. But I think a key thing that will really help us move along on this journey, like Richard mentioned, is communication amongst our departments, mm -hmm. amongst the different type of positions at the institution, um, and a shared sense of vision for what it is that we're looking to do, which is exactly what Richard just said. We want to serve anyone that walks through our doors the best, they, best way that we can, given who they are, what it is that they want to accomplish, and what their vision is for that. And so as we focus on communication and kind of all really being united as far as we want this to happen, and we're all going to, you know, like, lift where we stand in our own different departments, then we'll be able to see those changes. And as things come up that get complicated or could be problematic for whatever reason, because of that shared vision and that shared desire to serve all of our students, I'm confident that we'll be able to find some solutions that center our students and they're gonna ultimately benefit them um, the most. And that's all of our students, um, because ultimately, again, that's what we're trying to do. Richard and Sandys, thank you again for coming on today's show. It was a pleasure having you on. Uh, it was a wonderful conversation. Um, but before we let the both of you go, Richard, is there a song that you want to leave us with today? It was difficult to pick just one song. Uh, and, and, you know, there's so many options. Uh, I ended up picking uh, a song by Calle 13. Uh, that's called Latino America. Um, and mainly just because of the lyrics. Uh, and if you're bilingual or you speak Spanish, I, I think you will appreciate <laughs> some of the the lyrics in that song and, and how they relate to what's happening in, in some of our countries. And what about you, Sandys? Um, given a Netflix special that I saw recently about Kanye West, who is controversial in many ways, I kind of look back to his like music library from years past when he first, first came out. Um, and the song I chose was Champion by Kanye West. And it's a song about that, about championing um, the barriers you face, about the struggles that you've lived through, about your lived experiences with hardships. And just being that champion, being that number one person um, as far as you crushing your goals and moving forward. And so I strive to be a champion for my Latinx students and I strive to empower them so that they can become champions in whatever their dreams, their goals and their future vision for their life is and generations to come after them. So Richard and Sandy, thank you so much for coming. I was I was I really I really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you so much for being on here. <laughs> Thank My you for the invitation and, and kudos to y'all. I've been telling Zay this over text, but this is really like bravo, you all. Great job. <laughs> it was a pleasure having you. Um, stay with us through the end of the hour to hear Pop Culture Nuggets on behalf of the Voices Amplify team. Before we wrap the show, let's take a look at what's happening in the world of pop culture this week. Joining me now is Alexi Zollinger from the Voices Amplify team and Marcy Young-Cancio, Executive Director of Amplify Utah and Assistant Professor at Satellite Community College. Also here is today's lead producer, Zay Angel Alvarez. I'm Cristian Martinez. I will be starting. Um, I have been rewatching Atlanta on Hulu last week. Uh, up until now, in anticipation of its third season, which will be dropping this coming Friday. 
Um, for those who don't know, it's a comedy drama that centers on a music manager and a rapper as they navigate Atlanta's rap scene. And I cannot recommend this series enough. Yo, I've been, I think it's been like two years since the last season. And for a minute, I thought it wasn't, I mean, I got mad depressed. I'm like, yo, I needed this. COVID, that was just another thing that COVID took away from us. Season three of Atlanta. And it hurted. It hurt. <laughs> Yeah, and I think I think the pandemic had a lot to do with that. I think for a long time yeah. it was up in the air. Um, yeah. Alexi, what have you been up to? So I was just reading on the Salt Lake Tribune that there is going to be a series of alleyway concerts between May and August. The first one is set for May 21st in the Edison Street alleyway, which Yo. is yeah between uh, 2200 South and 300 South in downtown. It's going to be like an outdoor concert series with local artists. And then I think they're bringing on local rappers as well. Um, Snicks and Peach um, and Giovanni. And they are going to do some outdoor shows with um, some just like different artists um, joining as well. And that's going to be cool. It's going to be taking place from May to August downtown alleyways. So it's a pilot nope. program. Keep an eye out for that. That is so awesome. Those alleyways are like so unique. I think those are where they have these like giant, instead of street corner signs, they have like these giant light up blocks. And I think they have a piano there that like any, just outside that anybody can sit down and just play. That's cool. I've actually never been. I'll have to go drive by and check it out. It's awesome. And last but not least, what is uh, Marcy, what has captured your attention? Well, the big news this last week on Tuesday, the Senate passed um, a bill that would make daylight saving time the norm. Finally. Everybody's excited about this, right? Give people the people what they want. People are jazzed for more time, more <laughs> daylight hours. Um, proponents of it say less crime. Mm. All good, all good. Wait, but, is this a good or bad one? But no, it gives you more time. But Medical experts, of course, say that this is going to mess with your circadian rhythm, that you could get depressed, you could become more obese. So they, medical experts, are actually saying the Senate got this wrong. So while the whole world is super jazzed for more daylight time, more sun, the docs and the medical experts are like, well, yeah, they agree that we should stop moving back and forth. But we should have the Senate should have gone with the other one, keeping standard time instead of daylight saving time. Interesting. OK, because I was going to tell the experts that we, the people, have been depressed because of the switching back and forth. But you're <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you're saying they were doing the daylight savings and we should have done the standard one. Right. And this is all according to an opinion piece by The Washington Post. I, I did not do original reporting on here, but according to a, a piece that The New York Times, or I'm sorry, The Washington Post put out, they're saying, yep, everyone agrees that we should stick to just one time, that doctors and medical experts are saying standard time, even though, as they says, we the people want daylight <laughs> time, that that's maybe not the best thing for your waistline. Let's give it a year, two years trial run and let's see how we all feel and we'll come back. And that's a wrap for today's show. Thank you again to all of today's guests and a special thank you to Radioactive Executive Producer Laura Jones for passing us the mic each week. And thanks to our yeah. advisor, SLCC Assistant Professor and Amplify Utah founder, Marcy Yancancio. For a detailed overview of today's topics, conversations and stories, visit krcl.org and view tonight's show notes. You can also keep up with Amplify Utah by signing up for their monthly newsletter at AmplifyUtah.org. And for a special treat, be sure to check out the Amplify Utah Takeover of KRCL playlist filled with songs chosen by our guests and the Voices Amplify team. Don't forget to tune in every Monday night at 6 as we take a deeper dive into diversity. Special guests, stories that matter, things you care about. Voices Amplified, collaboration between Salt Lake Community College, Amplify Utah, and KRCL 90.9. It looks great on you.